Bible readings on page 1090, John chapter 21. Jesus and the miraculous catch of fish. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred metres. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. 
But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. When I'm preparing a sermon, I begin by reading through the passage carefully to see what jumps out at me, what, what particularly catches my imagination, my interest. There's nothing odd or unusual about that because I'm sure that most of you have the same approach when you're thinking about Scripture. But what I think you might find odd or unusual in this case is the actual verse that cried out to me for attention. I won't ask you to guess. There are some people in the room who already know which it is. It's actually verse 3. I'm going to fish, out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. What's special about this verse? Well, two things. One, I think vaguely amusing. I hope you'll find it amusing as well. And the other, deadly serious. So the first, the amusing one. As I read the verse... I found myself surfing a wave of nostalgia back to the 1950s, to the Sunday school that I went to when I moved, when we moved as a family to Norfolk. Now, to understand why it's amusing, you need to know two things. First, in those days, essentially all we had was the authorized, the King James version of the Bible, in which this particular verse, verse 3, is, is, thank you, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. They say to him, we also go with thee, which I have to say I found rather amusing, comical. I go a-fishing. And the second thing you need to know is that my Sunday school teacher, who was a lovely lady, was broad Norfolk. So I go a-fishing came out something like, I go a-fishing. And so now I always picture Peter in a little boat negotiating Potter Hyam Bridge on his way to a night's fishing in the Norfolk equivalent of the Sea of Galilee, which is Hickling Broad. That's the amusing reaction. Now the serious one. Because going fishing, gone fishing, is an American idiom, I guess it's largely American, used to describe someone who seizes the opportunity to escape from the rigors and responsibilities of daily life. The phrase emerged, I think, in the 1940s from the sort of practice of small-town storekeepers of shutting up shop at a whim, almost, on a quiet afternoon and heading to the river or to the lake. And it was actually captured on vinyl, do they say that anymore? On vinyl in 1951 by, in a song by Bing Crosby and Louis Armstrong, Gone Fishing. Now, although it was a phrase that was used, first of all, simply to describe checking out of reality, to do a bit of innocent daydreaming, recently, I think, it seems to have acquired 
rather more disturbing implications, nuances. It's to be totally unaware of everything that's going on around you, to repress unpleasant emotions, thoughts, memories, impulses, to be, as the psychologists say, in denial. And this is what I mean about my serious reaction to this passage, because I think this is how we can interpret Peter's behavior. He was in denial. Now, John tells us that this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first was on the evening of the day of his resurrection. And the previous chapter, John 20, we read that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, he says, I am sending you. So in other words, he's commissioning them to spread the good news of salvation far and wide. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that surely was the highest imaginable spiritual high you could ever have. The second appearance was the following week. Thomas, you remember, hadn't been there on the first occasion. He had, and he famously doubted the other disciples claim to have seen the Lord. So Jesus obliges with a second appearance, and Thomas makes that great confession of faith, my Lord and my God. That was his spiritual high as he transitions from doubt to belief. And so the event in our reading this morning is Jesus' third appearance to his disciples. We're not told exactly when it happened in relation to the first two, but we are told where it happened. It happened in Galilee. If you remember, it's in Mark's Gospel, but Mark tells us that when the women went to Jesus' tomb early on resurrection morning, they saw an angel, and the angel told them, he has risen, he's not here. Go and tell his disciples he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. So the disciples go to Galilee, maybe 90 miles, give or take a few, away from Jerusalem, and maybe four or five days walk through rough and sometimes dangerous country. I wonder how they feel. What kind of mood are they in? They've been on this emotional roller coaster, haven't they, from the giddy adrenaline high of Palm Sunday to the depths of despair on Good Friday and then back up to the overwhelming joy of seeing their risen Lord on Easter Sunday and being commissioned by him to carry on his ministry. But I wonder if now they felt, I don't know, a bit deflated, confused, aimless. True, they were back on familiar territory in Galilee, but without Jesus. No organization, no leadership, no plan of action. What to do? I don't know, just check out of reality. Let's go fishing. So they did. But that night they caught nothing. And as they make their way back to shore in the dim morning light, they notice a man standing on the beach. They don't recognize him but he seems sociable enough. He calls out, friends, haven't you any fish? And when they shout back, no, he tells them, throw your net on the right side of the boat. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that the immediate reaction of experienced fishermen who had just had a rubbish night's fishing would not have been something like, hey, what a great idea. Wish I'd thought of that. But presumably, something in this man's tone and demeanor inspires a degree of confidence. So they do as he says. And of course, they make that miraculous catch of fish. So many that they couldn't even haul in the nets very easily. And then, and only then, do they recognize him. John exclaims, it is the Lord. And Peter, impetuous as ever, jumps into the water, splashes his way towards the shore. The other disciples tow in the bulging nets. And Jesus says, come and have breakfast. The disciples might have been forgiven at this point for thinking, is this it? I mean, did Jesus make us walk 90-odd miles from Jerusalem just to have breakfast on the beach? But actually, Jesus' invitation to breakfast is full of symbolism because it's a reprise of a highly significant event three years or so previously, an event that we read about in Luke chapter 5. On that occasion, on this very same lake, Perhaps on this very same stretch of beach, the disciples had caught nothing all night, but then they'd taken Jesus' advice about where to let down their nets and were astonished at a catch so big that their boats began to sink. On that occasion, Peter fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. But Jesus had replied, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And immediately, immediately, Peter and several of his companions had left everything to follow Jesus. Now, three years later, they were eating breakfast with the risen Lord. So awestruck, if you like, that none of the disciples dared kind of ruin the moment by asking him, who are you? They knew. It was the Lord. Now, surely, the full realization that Jesus had accomplished what he came to earth to do and would soon be leaving them had dawned on them. And now, at this point, they needed to be called again to be his disciples. The first time the disciples were called, was an event that was unique to them. They were called by Jesus during his earthly life. They lived with him, ate with him, traveled with him, saw him heal, heard him teach. None of us can claim the same exact relationship with Jesus. We are not of their time. But now they're being called again, this time by the risen Lord Jesus, called to carry on his work on earth. And in that respect, we here in Thurnby on this fairly sunny morning in April 2023 can be exactly like those disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the dim light of dawn all those years ago. And just look at them. Peter, a public failure. Thomas, the doubter, cynical Nathaniel. Do you remember he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Angry young men, James and John, the sons of thunder. Two other disciples who aren't named. Ordinary people, just like us. And Jesus calls us, too, to carry on his work. The second part of our reading is all about Peter's reinstatement, his rehabilitation after the disgrace and shame of his denials of Jesus before the cock crowed. Peter's denials took place in a bustling courtyard of the high priest's house in Jerusalem. At a time of high tension and drama, Peter fervently denied, angrily denied, knowing Jesus in the hearing of soldiers, servants, officials, various hangers-on. His rehabilitation, by contrast, happened on this quiet stretch of beach beside a tranquil lake. But it was also a public event. There's no indication, is there, that Jesus took Peter aside and talked privately to him. Peter is challenged by Jesus in front of all the other disciples. And of course, both events have this threefold pattern. Peter's disgrace involved three denials. His reinstatement involves three challenges. Three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter replies, you know that I love you. Except notice that Jesus doesn't actually address him as Peter here. The name Peter was given by Jesus to him. On, an, on another occasion, in Matthew 16, we read, Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But Peter had clearly failed to live up to the name, the rock. And Jesus makes him face the fact of his failure by addressing him not as Peter, but as Simon, son of John. But this scene is not about Peter's embarrassment or humiliation or his hurt feelings, although I'm sure these were excruciatingly real at the time. The real significance of the story, of this story, is, is that Peter, that Jesus brings about Peter's complete and absolute restoration to a position of apostolic leadership. Each time Peter declares, you know that I love you, Jesus commissions him to care for his church, his flock. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. The metaphor has changed from fishing to shepherding. But remember that during his earthly ministry, Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. And now... As he's about to ascend to his father, it's as if he is commissioning Peter and the disciples to be shepherds on his behalf from now on. And there could surely have been no doubt in Peter's mind, or indeed in the minds of the other disciples, that Jesus had completely restored him. Not until Peter had confronted his sin and his failure, was the barrier to his real relationship with Jesus removed. And as it was for Peter, so it is for us. Before we can follow Jesus and serve him in his church, we have to address the sin 
in our lives, to take it seriously, to take it as seriously as God takes it, and to repent of it. Maybe difficult, could be embarrassing, especially in a public forum. It will inevitably be distressing. Such is the nature of sin. But repentance is essential. Jesus insisted on it with Peter to the extent of hurting his feelings. And he insists on it for us too. But the great thing is, as Peter discovered, no matter how desperate our failures, no matter how despicable our sin or how deep-seated our disgrace, if we repent, he will forgive and renew us and use us in his service. As Peter's story assures us, failure is never final with God. He gives us second chances. So what do we learn? What do we here in Thurnby in the 21st century learn from this story of an event 2,000 years ago? The third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Well, we learn, I guess, the importance of obedience. Disciples had fished all night in vain. As experienced fishermen, I'm sure they would have tried everything they knew to catch something. But nothing. Until, that is, they obeyed Jesus' command to throw the net on the right side of the boat even though it must have seemed totally illogical to them. I mean, fish can swim around anyway, can't they? But Jesus was saying, in effect, do things my way and you will be blessed. And not only that, but second, we learn that God is ready and willing to bless us abundantly. He blessed these cold, hungry, miserable, disillusioned disciples with a catch of fish greater than they would ever have imagined even had a hearty meal ready for them on the barbecue, on shore. Where did he get that fish from, I wonder? Anyway, shouldn't we also be reassured that whenever we're hungry or cold or in trouble, whenever we're sad or disappointed or disillusioned or desperate, whenever whatever our emotional, mental or physical distresses that we're experiencing at the time in our lives, the risen Lord, is always willing and able to reach into our lives and help us. And third, we also learn that God has plans. It was always God's plan for Peter to be a big hitter in the early church. And even when Peter went into denial, God didn't give up on him or change his plan. In the same way as disciples of Jesus today, we are also part of God's plan. And he won't give up on us either. When we stumble and fall, as we inevitably will, whenever we fail through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, he is there to pick us up, brush us off, dress our wounds, and send us on our way again to serve him even more productively than before. God wants us to live purpose-driven lives, and he has the plans for us to do just that. We need to become aware of his plans and purposes by 
listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he ministers to us. And as we do, God's plans will become our plans. God's will will become our will. And God will bless us abundantly. And all God's people say, Amen.